what it means is that if you're a person who's looking to hire a coach, you should hold high standards to who you want to hire because that does all of us a favor. It allows the coaching profession to be more credible. It allows the great coaches to earn a living and it starts to weed people who get into coaching with the best of intentions. They're like, you know what? I've walked some part of the journey. I like people. I like to be helpful. I think I can do some good here. Those are good intentions to show up with, but they're not sufficient. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote today is from Tom Landry, and it is, coaching is simplicity. It's getting players to play better than they think they can. Our guest today, Michael Bungay-Stanier, has helped to elevate the coaching industry. He's the founder of Box of Crayons and works with brands such as Yahoo and TD Bank to get the most out of their talent. Michael's also a top-rated speaker. He's spoken to organizations such as Microsoft and Salesforce and is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Coaching Habit and Do More Great Work. He also has a new book, The Advice Trap, which should be out right about when you listen to this podcast. So, Michael, welcome. I'm excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Bob, thank you. Although I'm realizing I need to tweak that introduction that says we've helped brands like Yahoo thrive because Yahoo hasn't really <laughs> thrived that much at the moment. But you're right. We are working with companies like Microsoft and Salesforce and Google and the like. So some pretty cool people we get to play with these days. Yes, you have a fun sandbox. <laughs> yeah. So you've lived all over the world, uh, but you grew up in Australia. Tell me a little bit about your, your experience growing up there and, and what eventually led you to leave 20 years ago. Well, you know, I had a pretty idyllic childhood. I have two awesome parents who are still happily married and just rocked their 50th wedding anniversary. I got two younger brothers who, you know, allowed me to bully them in the kind of older brother tradition and, and now don't beat me up, <laughs> even though I did that to them. So that's pretty cool. And, you know, even though Canberra and Australia are in the news at the moment for these terrible bushfires and, you know, the photos I see of Canberra, which is the capital of Australia, it's just blanketed in smoke in a way I've never seen before. Yeah. It was a great place to grow up. You know, I was a happy kid, a pretty self-sufficient kid. I love sport. I love reading. I got to do all of that. And then went to my local university, the Australian National University, and did a, a degree that you, you only really get, I think, in Australia. It's a combined degree. It's like you take two undergraduate degrees and get them done in one and a half times it would normally well you know a more efficient way than doing the degrees back to back so i did arts law so uh, a ba in literature and a law degree yeah. <laughs> so i was really good at literature so you'd be a good literary agent yeah but you know i uh you know i finished my law degree literally being sued by one of my law school lecturers for defamation <laughs> <laughs> A great guidance into why I shouldn't have become a lawyer. And in fact, the thing that stopped me becoming a lawyer and the thing that truly made all the difference is I won a Rhodes Scholarship. Yeah. And that's, uh, that took me to England and to study at Oxford. And I always say, look, two really brilliant things happened as a result of that. First of all, I, you know, within four weeks of arriving at Oxford, had met Marcella, the woman who 30 years later is my wife, and I was like, well, that's good. <laughs> Anything else is a bonus. And the other thing is it kind of confirmed that I wasn't going to become a lawyer because that opportunity, that some cost fallacy, which is like, well, I've done a law degree, so I may as well do my articling and kind of become a lawyer. And now I'm a lawyer. I may as well do a couple of years in a law firm. And well, now I've done a couple of years. It's only another five years till associate okay. partner. Now I'm an associate partner. I may as well be a partner. And who knows? I could have walked that path. And if I had, I'd be an unhappy man <laughs> trying to be a lawyer, not having this conversation with you. So it was a blessing in many ways. So what was the bridge between Oxford and, and you're getting your start in the coaching world? Uh, how, how did you actually start your career? Yeah. So when I finally finished my, my studies, I was so done with university. You know, I was like, okay, I've done six years in, as an undergraduate in Australia. I did a two-year master's at Oxford. 
And I'm like, I'm desperate to not be in university, but I don't know what to do. And I launched into the world of innovation and creativity. So inventing products and services for the world um, and starting to run and train people around the skills of creativity. And it was about that time that I noticed the rise of coaching happening you know, on the West Coast of the US, California. Because I was living in England at the time, obviously we looked at anything coming from the West Coast with a huge degree of skepticism. <laughs> you know, we're like this you know, flaky, oil. Yeah. yeah, flaky Californians. Of course, they're doing this thing called coaching, whatever that is. But the truth is, you know, as a teenager, um, a young man, I, I'd spent a lot of time being the person listening to the angst-filled conversations of my teenage friends, because, you know, that's what a teenager is. And even at the time, I'm like, I'm pretty good at being present and listening to what's going on. I just don't know what to do. I mean, other than be there and be present, which is, you know, more than half the battle, quite frankly. But it's like, but what else could I do? And then when I went to university in Australia, I signed up and was trained in crisis counseling for youth. So, you know, a kind of telephone suicide hotline thing. And that was the first real step into me understanding better what it means to ask a question, hold the space, make it psychologically safe, know that there's a little more below the surface than they might tell you right at the start. And finally, when I um, moved to Canada about 20 years ago, I was like, okay, I've hired a coach. I've kind of got a sense of what that's about. I'm going to do my own coach training. And it was a culmination of you know, all those experiences. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. <laughs> well, that was, that was kind of a moment for me, which is like, I, my past is telling me to do this coaching piece. And ironically, as I'd done the coach training and became a coach and built a coaching practice, I discovered I didn't actually like coaching <laughs> that much. I didn't like the business of coaching. It just felt a bit lonely and not quite scalable enough for me. So that took me into this career of, look, I don't want to be a coach. I want to help others be more coach-like. And, you know, that's kind of what I've been a champion for for the last 15 years. So when did you start Box of Crayons? 2002, July 4th, 2002. You know, I'd left Boston where I'd been living. I'd had a job lined up. It was going to be a kind of consultant in the space of change management, which is kind of the work I was doing at the time. And my wife, we had flights out of Boston on 9-11. <laughs> and so you can imagine that put a spanner in things. I mean, you know, minor details from my life compared to others. But it meant that when I arrived in Toronto, finally, the job I had lined up had vanished because all consulting jobs vanished in, in the, the wake of 9-11. And um, I got a job, an internal job, which I spent six months failing at. <laughs> and on the two days after I got my you know, landed immigrant status, which is like a green card status, I got fired from that job. So I was like, perfect. Now's the time to start my own company at last. So, you know, the, the universe, if you like, conspired to say, Michael, you are basically unemployable. Yeah. You need to start your own business at this stage. It's amazing how many people need that external thing to, they know what they want to do and, and they're just afraid to do it. And then when they're forced to do it, they almost universally say it was the best thing that ever happened to them. Yeah, I might've got there eventually, but it certainly helped having, you know, somebody give me a, a healthy shove in the back and push me out the door. I'm like, oh, I'm here now. Okay, let's see what I can make work here. And one of your interesting strategies you have your business is that you offer a 10-minute coaching session. Is that is that to prospects? You know, that's a great question in part because it points to bad marketing on my yeah. part. <laughs> so here's what Box of Crayons is about. Box of Crayons is a training company that helps organizations move from being advice-driven to curiosity-led. So under that umbrella, what we spend a lot of time doing is helping managers and leaders be more coach-like, which for us is, hey, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? That's the behavior change that we're trying to pull off. Yeah. And we're not going in to be coaches to them. We are training normal, regular people to make coaching part of their leadership repertoire. And 
the belief we have, and this is where the confusion comes up, is if you can't coach somebody in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. Because what we've got to do to champion coaching as a force for good inside organizations is we've got to unweird coaching. And most people and most organizations are like, you know what, coaching, I heard about it. I don't know, I'm too busy. And I just want to get my work done. I don't want to spend time doing kind of whatever HR stuff coaching is related to. And a big part of what we're trying to do at Box of Crayons is normalize this sense of what coaching is, which it's an everyday way of showing up. Right. It's part of your leadership repertoire. It's not HRE. It is about helping you and your team focus on the work that matter, have more impact, and grow your people so they become more confident and more confident and more self-assured and more self-sufficient. And you can do this even in the busy reality of your working life, which is you feel too busy. So you can do coaching fast. It doesn't have to be a 30-minute or a 45-minute conversation. It's quick. And what that does is it removes barriers people have to going, oh, you know what, coaching's not for me because I'm, I'm normal. I'm like, no, you're normal, which is perfect. That's who we need, being more coach-like. Well, and not spinning the hamster wheel faster, which I think leaders struggle with. So we just did an exercise this morning with our whole leadership team as a recap from last year for everyone to talk about. It was something I sort of stole from a podcast with uh, Adam Grant and Tim Ferriss about what's the 10% of last that they did last year they would have doubled down on and what's the 20% they would have stopped doing. And yeah. I, I think the most universal answers to that were the best time they spent was really coaching their team to kind of step up and take over stuff. And conversely, the stuff they want was stuff that they needed to delegate and stuff they should have gotten off their plate sooner. But those go hand in hand, right? Totally. <laughs> so you're so frustrated that everyone comes to you to solve problems. But if you haven't right. sat down with your team and worked on yeah. problem solving, like you're not going to stop that cycle of violence. You've trained them to come to you. Yeah. They're like, or, and they've trained you to go, your job is to give me the answer. And nobody wins with that. Yeah. You know, that idea, I mean, 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Do More Great Work. And to the model that you were just talking about, it says, look, everything you do falls into one of three different buckets. It's either bad work, which is kind of mind-numbing, soul-sucking, yeah. life-crushing bureaucracy where you're like, ah, you know, this is my one and precious life and I am doing this. What happened here? Right. There's bad work. Everybody recognizes that. There's good work, which I define as your job description productive, efficient, getting things done, what your boss wants you to do, what your boss's boss wants you to do. But it's also not so much about stretching and growing and increasing impact. It's more about sustaining the everyday work. And then there's great work, work that I define as work that has more impact and work that has more meaning. So it's both serves the organization and serves you. And the, the question I always, I mean, I get people to draw a little circle. You know, your listeners can do this now. Draw a circle, divide that circle into three segments that represent how much bad work, good work, and great work you're currently doing. And now you've got, a, you've got some data. Are you happy with that? Almost nobody is. Almost nobody is going, just got too much great work right now, too much of the work that lights me up, excites me, makes a difference in the world, and there's too much of the other stuff. And that comes to... Uh, really powerful coaching question, which is if you're going to say yes to the work that has more impact, what are you going to say no to? Because there's no point in doing the exercise you did this morning, Bob, where you go as a team, yeah, we want, here's a 10% that could really make the difference. It's unless you clear space for it. And that's where it gets hard because everybody gets that in theory. But in practice, you're like, I'm going to say no to stuff which means I've got to say no to people, which means I have to disappoint people. So who am I willing to disappoint so that my work matters, so that my team thrives, so that my CEO is delighted in the work that I do? Right. And hopefully not yourself. <laughs> right. Right. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, 
available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Well, I, I have a curious question for you because you alluded this, this before. You're in London and seeing the sort of coaching industry kind of pop up in the U.S. and 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 now it's exploded, right? And I'm oh. now it, everyone's a coach, right? And, and I struggle with this because I, I know what you talk about is sort of making everyone more coach-like, but I'm curious yeah. on your perspective on the industry because I've I've had discussions with myself both ways on this. So, you know, I look at professional sports and and it's often not you know, the all-star athletes and the MVPs and the best players who, who are the best coaches. Right. But in business, it always used to be like people did something really well and then they became a coach. And now I just see people who have done things not well or maybe even really poorly and failed then becoming a coach. Yeah. I, I'm really conflicted on, on, on this because I have a lot of different evidence either way, but I'm uh, irrespective of your opinion on that all leaders should be coaches, I, I'm curious more in your commentary on this behemoth that has become this coaching industry and, and who is qualified and who is not qualified to be a coach. You know, I'm not conflicted about this. <laughs> I think in the coaching industry, people who are putting out their shingles saying, I'm a coach and ch- I'm going to charge you money for my time, there's a lot of mediocrity. Yeah. Because the barrier to entry is purely whether you're able to say the phrase, I am a coach. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) If you can say that, you can claim to be a coach. And there isn't, uh, I mean, there are, there's kind of like a sorted things like ISO 900 qualifications, which is like, there's no standard. You've got some hygiene factors to make sure that you know some of the principles from the ICF and stuff like that. But there's a vast amount of difference between coaches who are outstanding and coaches who are good, <laughs> and coaches who are pretty mediocre and ho-hum. And it often has not much to do with their training. I know a number of people who I would call brilliant coaches who haven't ever done a coach training course. And I know some people who've done a lot of coach training and they're still not that great. So I think in some ways it's like the market gets to sort this out. Right. And what it means is that if you're a person who's looking to hire a coach, you should hold high standards to who you want to hire because that does all of us a favor. It allows the coaching profession to be more credible. It allows the great coaches to earn a living and it starts to weed people who get into coaching with the best of intentions. They're like, you know what? I've walked some part of the journey. I like people. I like to be helpful. I think I can do some good here. Those are good intentions to show up with, but they're not sufficient. You need some rigor. You need some models. You need some scars. You need a, a degree of emotional intelligence and a kind of, you know, the language I use, Bob, is fierce love. Like, are you able to give your clients fierce love? Love in that you're wholeheartedly in support of them, 
fierce in that you're willing to do what it takes to push them, to challenge them, to provoke them, to set boundaries, all of that sort of stuff. That all makes perfect sense to me. But based on my analogy before, sort of with the athletes, and, and look, the flip side of this is true. Some people who are really good doers are not good coaches. <laughs> they don't know how to, oh, yeah. yeah, they don't know how to package it. They don't know how to listen. They're just, they're good at doing it. But you know, it, let's say in business or in leadership, like someone to be coached by someone who really didn't do it or or failed at doing it and is now a coach. Yeah. How, how do you think about that? So I'm just going to talk about myself. <laughs> I've had a bunch of successes that I can point to, you know, kind of badges that I can wear. But if you look at my career, I have never been a great manager. You know, occasionally I've been a good manager. Sometimes more than I'd care to admit, I've been a bad manager. So if you're going, so teach me to be a better manager and a leader, Michael, based on my track record, <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't go, I'm picking Michael first out of all of this. But here's what I've got. I've got this self-awareness to know where my strengths and weaknesses are. Right. I've got a bunch of learning around what leadership is and what management is and how it works. I've got a 20 years practicing a craft, which allows me to go, I think I know what questions work. I think I know what, how to, to both be curious and ask questions, but also to teach and provide insight as well. So what's easier, the people who are, you know, you're like, these people suck. <laughs> no, they're, they're really bad at what they've done before. They don't have any redeeming features. They're like, yeah, you shouldn't be a coach. But what gets more nuanced is people who like, even though I don't have a wonderful track record, perhaps, there's something in how I show up as a coach where I can be absolutely fantastic. And, and to your point, you know, there are, if this all came really easily to you, sometimes that makes you a terrible teacher because you're like, I don't even know how I learned this stuff. Right. I just did it. And you're like, okay, so that's lucky for you, but it makes it hard for you to share your wisdom. Adam Grant had a great article on this, and, and he, he was arguing a very specific points about why academics would make better doers than doers would make academics. But he was talking about a, a diving coach and, and, and once, and he had asked another expert diver about how to do something, and the, the person was like, hey, you just jump and you know, do it. Like, you know, it was so... Thing, yeah. you know, and, and there was a guy on the team who had sort of coached, who, who sort of broke down the steps for him, and who, who actually wasn't as talented, but understood the the mechanics behind it and it was an interesting analogy yeah i mean i mean look at the two biggest names in english football coaches you've got marino and um the manchester city coach uh pep uh forgotten his surname and they were both players who played at a pretty high level but were grinders they weren't they did not excel in any way at the level in which they played but they brought a, an understanding of the experience right to it. So they're like, I can teach this. And I have a, I have a philosophy that's based in rigor of thought and in learned experience at the same time. Yeah, no, I know. I think that's pretty common. And then I think it's a great way for people to think about, and as you said, ask the right questions as they're right. talking to someone who might be their coach. Yeah. All right. So I'd love to dive in and talk about your book, The Coaching Habit, which you self-published and made into a bestseller and wrote a phenomenal article about how you did it. We'll, we'll provide a link to that because I think if anyone wants to understand how to self-publish a best-selling book, Michael had an incredible uh, formula for how he did this and was kind enough to, to lay it all out in an article that was sent to me by, by a lot of people. How many copies have you sold now of that book? Uh, you know, it's trending towards three quarters of a million copies now which is, as you know, as a fellow author, that is a ridiculously large amount of books. I mean, that's inconceivable in terms of actually how many books have been sold. So I'm pretty stoked about it. Yeah. And just for perspective for people, I mean, for a self-published book, that would put you in the top one-tenth of one-tenth of, of 1%. So this is, you are a unicorn and, and I know you're about to do it again. <laughs> uh, so what, tell me, why did you decide to self-publish that book? Oh, because I ran out of other options. I mean, I, I had um, the Do More Great Workbook I mentioned earlier on. Uh, that was published by a New York publisher. I self-published a version of it, and this publisher picked it up and actually went, we really like this. Don't print too many, and we'll redo it as our book. And I was like, amazing. I have a New York publisher. How cool is that? Yeah. And uh, then when I got this idea for the coaching habit, I literally spent three or four years trying to get them to publish the book. 
I even went and got myself a New York book agent, which also felt really cool because it's like one of the big names in that space. And I just could not make it work. The agent couldn't sell it. I couldn't sell it. I actually wrote, I think, four full versions of books based around called The Coaching Habit or something like it. And was that because you were trying to, was this the book you wanted to write and you kept trying to bend it to what they wanted, were asking you for? Yeah. So, so they would go, oh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's not quite right. But um, maybe something more like this. And I'm like, okay, so let me try and reinvent everything about the book. And after a while, I'm like, I, somebody told me an insight about editors. They're like, if they tell you what's wrong, they're probably correct. That's probably a useful insight. If they suggest a solution, be very skeptical about that because their solution is often not the right solution at all. Anyway, after four years, I sat down with the publisher of this company and went, okay, I've reconnected to what I think this book really is because I've, you know, I've spent so many years trying to write it now. I'm going to put this on the table. It's either a yes or a no. I'm not going to take a maybe anymore. You've either got to say yes, let's do it, or no, we're not interested. And they said no. And honestly, Bob, I was gutted. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you know, my other book, Do More Great Work, has sold almost 100,000 copies. I've got some chops around marketing. Why wouldn't you bet on the person rather than betting on the book? But they chose not to. So, you know, I spent a month or two licking my wounds and feeling umbrage, disappointment. But then I went, you know what? I'm, this book, actually, I can see it. I can feel it. I think there's something there. I'm going to self-publish. But my commitment, and I talk about this in the, the article you're going to link to, my commitment is to publish it as a professional. I want somebody in the book industry to pick this book up and not know that it was self-published. Yeah. Because we've all had that experience of seeing a self-published book, and you can just kind of tell immediately, right? The, the design isn't quite right. The weight of the cover isn't quite right. High gloss, like, cover yeah. it looks like, yeah. There's all these clues that almost exist subconsciously where you're like, this, is, this feels like it was done through a self-publishing process rather than a regular publishing process. Right. So I hired experts. I hired a really good editor. I hired a really good designer. The designer introduced me to this company called Page Two, who are like um, a publishing house who will allow you to white label. So in other words, I publish my books under the imprint Box right. and Crayons Press, but really they're the machinery. They do all the details. They help me with distribution. They get the book into airports. Yeah. They allow me to do that. And I've got the, the luxury of being able to have, I have the cash up front that I can pay for that service. And being able to pay for that up front allows me to publish it, control the book, tweak the book, invest in the book, play around with the book, earn more money from the book. It's really turned out to be a great move for me. Yeah. One, one of the things you talk about doing that no publisher would have let you do is, is saying, hey, can you rate this book at the end of the book? And I saw this morning, you have over 2,000, almost five-star reviews on Amazon, which is a huge driver of you know, visibility and algorithm. Yeah. And obviously, right, it's a strategy that helps sell books. But I, I, I loved reading the, the story about that. Yeah. And uh, you know, for me, the book is part of a business ecosystem. Like yeah. I want people to pick up the book and then go, oh, well, Mike was interesting and Box of Crayons is interesting, so maybe I should look into that. And we're able to point to literally millions of dollars of revenue that have come from new clients, from people who found us through the book. But it's meant that I've been able to play around with the call to action. So the first call to action was, can you please write a review? That would be great. Yeah. And then the second call to action was, hey, why don't you go to this website and download some good stuff? And then the third call to action was, hey, go and check out Box of Crayons because we're cool. And now the, the latest call to action in the Coaching Habit book was, Go and sign up so that you can get information about my new book that's coming in February, The right. Advice Trap. So I've been able to play around with all of that to go, it's an ecosystem. So how do you tweak it? And that's something that the freedom of self-publishing gives you. Let's talk about the book itself, which you know has really a cult following among managers and leaders. And uh, I, I noticed that our coaches that we work with were asking us all these questions that were in, in reference to your, your seven questions. So you talk about the importance of the seven questions. Can you take yeah. us through that and maybe give an example of each one and why, why it's important sure. from the perspective of coaching? 
So the context for this is I'm trying to make coaching feel unweird. There's not some kind of yeah. black box where you're like, I don't know, they go off to this mysterious place and they get anointed <laughs> as a coach. I'm like, no, look, you're trying to stay curious a little bit longer. That's the goal here. And seven good questions can take you a long way down the path. And, you know, as part of the writing and rewriting of this, I experimented with a number of questions a lot. You know, was, one stage I wrote a version of this book which had more than 150 questions in it. I'm like, all right, two pages per question it'll be it'll be amazing and it was terrible it was just a terrible book because it was overwhelming it was useless so i'm like i've got to find the right number that people can go ah oh, you know if this is coaching staying curious and if it's just seven questions i can probably do that i can probably use this so i'll, I'll give you some of the questions i mean one of my favorites is a pairing of the seven questions and it's called the bookends pair and it's how you start a conversation and how you end a conversation in a way that you can do time and time and time again. It can become a, a coaching habit for you. And it can make your conversations faster, better, and smarter. The kickstart question, the first question in the book, is what's on your mind? And it has that kind of Goldilocks quality of being a question that is both open. It says to them, look, I'm not going to tell you what to talk about. You tell me what matters but also focusing. It doesn't say, tell me anything and tell me everything. It says, what I want to hear is the thing that you're worried about or excited about or overwhelmed by or just, you've got to get off your plate. Right. Let's go somewhere that matters. So that kickstart question has the ability to get you into an interesting conversation fast. And then the learning question, question seven in the book, is a great way to finish a conversation. And by conversation, Bob, I'm talking about in person, on the phone, by text, by email. It's an exchange with somebody. And the learning question is, what was most useful or most valuable here for you? What was most useful here for you? Kind of referencing the conversation you've just had. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is Stop Eliminating Perfectly Good Candidates by Asking Them the Wrong Questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, the big idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. And is there an implication in some of these questions that what people answer is not what they thought they were going to answer? <laughs> well... I think people are often surprised by what shows up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the coach or the person or, or both? Well, you hope it's for the coach. Because, and you hope it's for both. Yeah. You hope it's for the coach because the more you ask a question and you hear an answer that you weren't completely expecting, 
the more you realize the value in asking the question and helping them figure this stuff out themselves rather than offer up your ideas and your opinions because we all overrate the importance and the quality of our own advice. So that, that last question, the uh, learning questions are classic. You go, okay, I mean, people can do it to this podcast. You're like, Bob and I have talked about a bunch of things. What was most useful or most valuable from this podcast? Right. So what it does is this. First of all, it stops everybody from just kind of passively receiving what we're talking about. They go, huh, well, Mike was talked about starting a company and he's talked about publishing a book and he's talked about self-publishing and he's talked about coaching and he's talked about questions. Out of all of that, what was most useful for you? So now you're engaged and you're being forced to kind of go, I'm extracting the value from this conversation. Secondly, as the person who's asking it and therefore hearing the answer, you get to understand what actually struck a chord for people. Right. And what you may think as is your genius pearl of wisdom that dropped from your lips and your, here's a nugget of gold that will cherish you for years to come. And they say something completely different. You're like, well, that's interesting. It tells you what to do more of and perhaps less of next conversation. It also tells you that different people find different points of value in different things that you say. Okay. So from a feedback loop, right? I ask all of these questions in a, in a coaching session. And then how do I bring them back kind of full circle? Is it, is it the, would you suggest it's the same thing every time or do you oscillate between different questions? Honestly, I think there's some value in pretty much saying the same thing every time. And not yeah. only that, train them so they know what you're about to ask them. Like you can imagine the people I work with on my team. Have they heard every one of the seven questions on the coaching habit one bazillion <laughs> times each? Of course yeah. they have. But it's a process that works. Well, and here's the thing. So you start off and the first time they're like, Michael, you're amazing. You're such a good leader and a manager and a coach. <laughs> great questions. And then when they go, huh, it appears that he only has seven questions. There's a kind of, I'm not going to say anybody on the team's done an eye roll, but I bet you it's occurred to them to do that. But then after they get through that, they go, yeah, but the questions work. Right. So why wouldn't you just keep doing the questions that work? And so now I show up and, you know, I'm talking to Chloe on my team. And, and I go, hey, Chloe, so what's on your mind? And she's like, yeah, here's what's on my mind. I've been thinking about that. And then I go, so what's the real challenge here for you, the focus question? And she's already thought about it. She's already there. She's self-coaching okay. herself. And I get to work even less hard, which is perfect because I've got other stuff to do. She's internalizing the questions and getting used to using the power of the questions to guide her own thoughts, which means that our conversations become increasingly valuable because they're all about solving the hard, sticky stuff that she hasn't been able to figure out by herself. Interesting. Well, I'm sure that takes us a little bit to your new book, The Advice Trap, Be Humble, Stay Curious, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. And I'd love to give us the high-level preview there. Uh, you know, having been in in EO entrepreneurs organization for a while and, and most joining YPO, you know, one of the, one of the key tenants of form there, the huge thing I've learned is to start sentence with in my experience, <laughs> and right. not, not giving advice. And that's actually become something I've, I, I've carried elsewhere. So nice. tell us about, uh, particularly in coaching or in feedback, how, how we get into the advice trap. Yeah. So, I mean, the starting point is to say, this is not a book that says all advice is bad. I mean, that would be stupid. It's a book that says, you know what, what kills us is not giving advice. What kills us is when our default response, our habit, our instinctive reaction to any situation is to leap in with a, an idea, a solution, an insight, an action, some advice. That's what starts getting in the way of productive conversations. And the genesis for the book, because, you know, Bob, you've just got pretty elevate out in the world in the last number of months. There's nothing like writing a book to make you say, I never want to write another book again in my life. <laughs> because yeah. it's hard. And well, it's like a baby. You say it at the time yeah. and, then, and then you forget how bad it was. Totally. And, then, and then months later, you're like, I just talked to someone who has just got through a, and he's like, ah, I'm thinking about another one. I was like, well, it was terrible, wasn't it? So yeah. <laughs> yeah, process. exactly. Yeah. So all of that. And what I noticed with the coaching habit was there are some people who had the coaching habit and went, 
of these seven questions, they're great. I've started to use them. It's changing the way I lead. It's changing my team. It's changing the dynamic in my home. This is fantastic. Michael, you're a genius. And of course, I love those emails. Yeah. But there are <laughs> you have a special people, folder for those. I, special, I do have a special folder of people who write nice things to me. But there's a bunch of people, none of whom wrote to me, but kind of, I bet, who went, I've read the book. I like the book. I like the seven questions. I can't seem to actually use them. I can't seem to somehow integrate them into my, my working life. Why is it so hard for me to be curious and be curious longer? What's getting in the way? And I really wanted to tackle this kind of the barrier to what it takes to be curious because it sounds easy enough, right? Because right. all I'm asking you to do is stay curious a little bit longer, rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly. How hard can that be? For lots of us, it's hard. It is yeah. hard to shift that deeply ingrained habit of giving advice. Two ears, one mouth, use them proportionally. Yeah, exactly. So we've all read that and we're like, yeah, but, uh, but how? <laughs> how do I overcome years of training where you've been rewarded for the person who to be, by having the answer? You know? You were rewarded in school, you were rewarded in university, you're rewarded in your early career to learn stuff, know stuff. That's how you pass the test. And I'm like, in this world where, first of all, all the answers are findable on Google and they're better answers than you had. Yeah. And secondly, it's a more complex, confusing, different world anyway. Curiosity is a more powerful force. And reframing your role as somebody who says, oh, I'm seeing my job as the person who figures out what the real challenge is for us to work on rather yeah. than the person who can come up with the fast and usually slightly wrong idea. Yeah. And so that's what this book is about. It's like, here's some stuff around behavior change. Here's some stuff about the power of focus and the value in doubling down on spending a bit more time getting clear on what the real challenge is. And here's a piece around the neuroscience of engagement. How, when you're in conversation with somebody, whether it's a coach-like conversation or not, do you make your conversations irresistible so people stay engaged with you? Well, I'm excited to read it. And I got to ask you, it looks like you self-published again. And I know after I selling three quarters of a million books, there, <laughs> you wouldn't have book offers. So you're betting on yourself? Well, it just, I, I mean... So yes, I'm, I'm betting on myself, in part because the last bet worked out so well, I'd be yeah. foolish not to give this another go. And secondly, I just like the control. Yeah. Like the book is an extension of my brand, my personal brand and Box of Crowns' brand. So for me to be able to work with you know, Peter, the designer, and be able to shape that, and to have the final say in this is what it's going to look like, this is what's going to be in there, this is how we're going to talk about things, rather than when you're an author who's contracted to a publishing house, that they get the final say. You know, they're underwriting it, so it's their right. Yeah. So yeah, placing the bet, and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I like it. Because look, it would have been very easy to get a, a big advance. So yeah. this is boasting a bit, so forgive me around that. But one of the cool moments was a year after The Coaching Habit came out, having a, one of the big famous publishing houses offer to buy it and offer me a, a big chunk of money for it and actually say, well, thank you, but no, because what you bring isn't quite sufficient for what I lose in terms of the control and, and what I'm getting from it. That must have felt so good. Well, you know, honestly, <laughs> partly I was gutted because this is a publishing house I've looked to and admired for years. So part of me is like, I would love to be published by you guys. Just not this book because this book's already, I've already got this book sorted. Maybe another one down the line, perhaps. I, I find it's really interesting when we idolize something in life and then it's presented to us and we often realize it's actually not what we want in that moment of, yeah. of decision. I, I, I've had that happen a few times. And, you know, one thing not to get into book economics with people, but I think it's an interesting for people to understand when you hear about like an advance on a book, right? That's, that's an advance against royalties in, in terms right, of, right. you know, if you don't get a good advance, but your book sells a million copies, you, you will end up in the same place based on the, the percentage yeah. deal you have. And if you get a big advance and you don't earn it out, my, I, my understanding is you will never write another book again <laughs> that is sold. So it's yeah. organized to be very, it can be very win-lose around whether you want to bet on yourself or not. Yeah. I mean, advantages, a book advance is a cash management thing. It's yeah. like, hey, author, I will we'll give you money so you can actually write this and you don't have to worry about 
working and earning the whole time. Yeah. It's also, there is something that the bigger the advance, the more the publishing house is invested in making it work, so the more that they will market it for you. So there's a kind of deeper commitment than just the cash. Yeah. But it's also true that there's then pressure on you to actually to have the book be a success. Yeah. All right, last question for you. And, and, and you should have a lot of good answers to this as a, a, a given your profession. But, and this can be singular or, or a repeated, but what's a personal or professional mistake that you've learned the most from? I have so many, <laughs> so many <laughs> mistakes to draw upon. You know, I honestly feel that most of my life is bumbling through getting it mostly not right, but being resilient enough to kind of bounce back and taking some good bets along the way. I think uh, I, I tend to be lucky enough to have a good enough life that even the stuff that hasn't worked out or I've screwed up on, I'm, I can reframe it not as a mistake, but, you know, as a learning opportunity, which I know sounds a bit kind of high in the sky. But I t I'll tell you my first, um, my first job. So it's this innovation company in, the, in England. and. Uh, I'd done the interview. I was kind of excited by meeting them because they were quirky and different and non-corporate. And I kind of like, this feels like a, a fit. And I've interviewed in a bunch of other places that really didn't feel like a fit. And uh, by the time the offer, they were ready to make me an offer, I'd flown out to Australia to visit my parents. So I got a call from Matt, the founder, evening in Australia. And... Um, Matt was like, all right, Michael, we want to, we want to give you a, we want to make you an offer. We'd like you to join this company. I was like, amazing. I'm so excited. And he's like, so how much would you like as a salary? And I thought back to the, the job ad and it said the salary is somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 pounds per year. Okay. And I was thinking to myself, you know, most of the other people that we're interviewing were undergraduates. I have a master's degree. I have a law degree. I have, I have a lot of university education. I was a rogue scholar, blah, 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 blah. So I paused for a moment. I said, Matt, I'd like 12,000 pounds, please. <laughs> and Matt was like, there's a stunned silence on the end of the phone. As Matt was like, wow, he's underbid the minimum by 3,000 pounds. Right. <laughs> what is going on here? And Matt came back and went, well, how about we start you on 15,000? I'm like, yes, fantastic. See, I've already got a pay rise. And let's frame that as a mistake because it was not a, not a strong negotiation stance. What was the strategy? <laughs> that, yeah, so it makes it sound like I had a strategy, which is, first of all, I hadn't thought about the money at all. Yeah. And secondly, I, hadn't, I just hadn't thought about the money. And I really wanted the job. And I had no real grounding on how, what difference – yeah, the cost of living and living in London would be. Right. So I was like, I'm just making this play because I, I want the job. Yeah. And the lesson there is get your act together around money. You know, we talked about coaches and there's a lot of bad ones out there. I've had one guy who's been my coach for the last 14 years, a guy called Ernest. And part of the reason that he is in my corner, why I hire him, is he helps me with the money stuff. Because I don't have a natural instinct to make the cash become super rich because I'm not right. that's not part of my value set. I'm not particularly driven by that. And I know I need to be good with money to run a company, scale a company, be able to employ other people. I've got to get my act together around that. So I'd say let's call it a mistake. Um, it certainly was a display of, of weakness and ignorance. And I've worked hard to trying to get my own act together around money, but also make sure I've got people around me who are better at it than I am. Good lessons there, particularly on, on, on negotiation, reverse psychology negotiation. Exactly. Well, Michael, what's the best place for people to learn more about you, uh, your work, your books, upcoming books? Yeah. So if you go to theadvicetrap.com, that's a great place to go. Um, there's certainly going to be stuff about the books and there's a ton of cool stuff we're giving away, including a questionnaire where you can take a short questionnaire and discover which of the three personas of the advice monster is most strong <laughs> in you. Is it tell it, is it save it, or is it control it? So theadvicetrap.com. And my umbrella site is mbs.works. So you'll see other books and stuff that I've written there. And if you're interested in the corporate training side, then boxofcrayons.com is the website for that. Awesome. 
Well, Michael, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. I've really enjoyed following your work and having a chance to hear your story. Well, my pleasure. I really appreciate this. I mean, I appreciate you having read the article I wrote about how to do book marketing. And then that's a good article. Yeah. Helping me out (laughs) with the book marketing. It's really kind of you. (laughs) All right. To our listeners, thank you for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Michael and his work and anything we talked about on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Michael or any of the episodes on the Elevate podcast, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it's one of the best ways to help new users discover the show and get the same learnings. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, it only takes 10 seconds. You just select the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down to the bottom, and you can leave a review. Thanks again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.